So welcome to another episode of Tolkien with Friends. Today we are joined by our friend Sarah, who you may know as Essie Holmes 25 on TikTok. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for joining Hi. us. Thank you so much for having me. Is there anything you want folks to know about you before we get started? Mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel excited to be here. Uh, maybe I'll just say that like we met via TikTok and yeah. just us both kind of talking about like books and movie differences and stuff um and you made you recently made a really excellent hobbit series about the movie and that was really awesome i, lo I loved it so much thank you that was um the whole thing was kind of a surprise i thought i was gonna do like one video where i just made fun of the hobbit movies and it turned mm -hmm. into like i forget nine videos or something it was like a video I essay yeah, it really was. Um, and I actually had a lot of fun doing it. So, Yeah, I mean, it was great because it's like, I think um, we don't say as many people talk about The Hobbit, like on Twitter and stuff. And I do know some fan accounts that like use clips from it, make fan edits and stuff. But as far as just like, like a general discourse about it, there isn't really a lot, I would say. I think a lot of people saw the movies and were like, oh, these are not good. And they just didn't want to talk about them again. <laughs> Which, mm -hmm. well, you know, fair, you can have your opinion, but personally, I think they're worth a rewatch because, uh, yeah, I've, I've changed my mind about them. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the thing is that like how, how you approach the Hobbit is pretty key, I think. Yeah. Because I don't know. I, uh, and I think that's something that we talk a lot of, about a lot is that, like the beauty of adaptation like you don't have to just recreate the thing that the original thing as, as a one for one in a visual okay. medium um you can like play with it and do different things with it you know and and i think that there are a lot of parts about the hobbit that are good you know like I, vandral I <laughs> Got Lee Pace stand over here. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> or like, like I will take any scene with Gandalf in it. Like I don't even care what he says. Oh yeah, just... and Galadriel. Yes, and absolutely. Bilbo for that matter. Just... Yes. Nah. Yeah, Martin Freeman was. I mean, there was no other choice. I don't want to talk about how perfect that man is either. <laughs> Because he's so good and everything he does. That's so true. Martin Freeman really like that man can act. <laughs> yeah. And it's like very subtle. Like it doesn't feel like he's doing a lot, but for some reason he's conveying so much. Um, totally. He's he's good. Yeah. So good. So okay, so thank you for joining us. Thanks for um, having me. So today we're talking about three chapters, uh, The Ring Goes South, The Journey in the Dark, and The Bridge of Khazad-dûm. And this is uh, equivalent to an hour and 43 minutes into Extended Edition of Fellowship and ending at like two hours and 28 minutes. And I think that this is the longest chunk of movie we have ever discussed at once. So, but before we jump into our chapters this week uh we wanted to dive into another love that we all share so sarah in our first episode we talked about the role of adaptations in fandom and just end up talking about a few of the fandoms that we also love and participate in um so word on the street is that all three of us are miyazaki slash studio ghibli fans yes and 
for listeners who, I mean, obviously this is a Lord of the Rings fandom type of thing. Like you don't have to know what that is, but uh, that means like movies like My Neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, so on and so forth. Um, so we were curious, do you have a favorite Miyazaki movie? And what do you love about Studio Ghibli films? All right. So it is definitely very hard to pick a favorite because so many of them are so good. But if I have to, Princess Mononoke is my favorite for sure. It was the first one I ever saw a long, long time ago. Mm. Um, And I mean, I love it for the same reason that you love any Miyazaki movie. Like the artwork is gorgeous. The stories are like heartwarming and sweeping. Um, But anytime a movie is one of my favorite movies, it almost always also has one of my favorite soundtracks and the music. And Princess Mononoke is just absolutely incredible. Like, um, not to sound like a total nerd, but my first dance at our wedding was to the song Akitaka the Sun. Oh, that's awesome. Lovely. It's the one at the end that plays um, when they're in the field of grass. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so we danced to that one at our wedding. Oh, that's beautiful. That's amazing. I feel like I didn't make my wedding nerdy enough, truthfully. Like, we put some of it in the vowels. I mean, it, ours was, like, space-themed. Ooh. But it's, like, a different kind of nerdy, I guess. But Yeah, yeah. I feel like it was it was good. It was nerdy yeah. enough. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I think that... I don't know. I don't... Like, the stories are so dynamic. And I, I love that they have i mean like obviously the animation is beautiful the music is amazing like it hits every time you know Mm -hmm. uh but also just like i love that he's they're constantly centering there's young women a lot of the time i love that they're exploring different sides of humanity um and that there's never really like a bad guy per se um, that there's there's like just so much to them and they're yeah. so beautifully presented. Anna, do you have a favorite? Howl's Moving Castle is probably my favorite with Princess Monomoke as like a very, very sh- like close, just close like, second. Right like it's, it's so close. There's just something about Howl's Moving Castle though is so whimsical and mm-hmm. is so delightful. And I love the chemistry between like all of the, you know, the characters. Kelsifer's great. Uh, Sophie's great. Um, Hal is amazing. And I, I love Christian Bale's, you know, dub for, for the American version. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's so lovely. And I don't know. It just, it, it hits different for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so hard to pick a favorite. It's like, because, like, um, as a kid, I think the very first movie that I ever saw from Miyazaki was My Neighbor Totoro, and would just watch that, like, on repeat. And, and being the Fox English dub, which is now, like, nowhere to be found. Well, my friend did find it, like, somewhere on the depths of the internet, but like you can't buy it anymore because Disney bought them and then they redubbed it with Dakota Fanning and her sister. And it's like you picked like they're fine, 
but they're also like the whitest sounding little girls (laughs) ever so it just doesn't seem to fit but um I do love that one I do love Howl's Moving Castle I feel like Howl's Moving Castle is one that I'll just put on just be like ah you Mm -hmm. know um but I don't know. I feel like sometimes I just go through fades and I'm like, we're watching all of them this weekend, you know? Oh, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> He's into it. <laughs> well, sometimes I'll be like watching it and then I'll turn it off and he's like, why did you turn it off? And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh. I thought you were over it, but guess not. Apparently not. Yeah. So um, if you are a fan of Studio Ghibli and Lord of the Rings... Let us know. Give us a shout out on, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, wherever. Because uh, we would love to know how many of us overlap <laughs> into those worlds. Probably um, a lot would be my yeah. guess. Probably. Well, and then there's like the some parts of the Tolkien fandom that are icky that probably don't. But <laughs> we won't we don't appreciate fantasy or whimsy. So we just. Yeah. Or like the centering of women oh uh, right i forgot <laughs> <laughs> but we won't talk about them today because this is all about what we want to talk about um so uh with that wonderful digression we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming so the last time we saw frodo just as like as a reminder to everybody he had just volunteered to take the ring to mordor at the council of elrond and now um they are picking who gets to go to Mordor and gets to go. I say that like it's a, like a fun prize that they won, um, but who decide <laughs> will get to go um, and, you know, the next steps that they take to uh, on their journey. So I think, to me, the general vibe of the next like, the 45-ish minutes of movie that we're talking about generally pr- are pretty faithful to the book. Um, but I, I want to call out a few points today, and those are how Merry and Pippin were able to join the Fellowship, the differences between the book and the movie, um, the different treatments of like the lead-up to the Mines of Moria, our first appearance of Gollum in the movie, and, of course, the Balrog. So, Merry and Pippin first. So in the movies, Merry and Pippin force their way into the fellowship in much the same way that Sam does. They just kind of like are like, hey, we're coming too. Um, and they're just like volunteering at the right time. And as we point out a few times, I feel like this is a little bit of a disservice to the Hobbits and really like many of the characters in the scene because in the book, Elrond is essentially, he's picking out the members of the Fellowship. It's, like, very intentional that it's nine, and it's very intentional that it's representative of the free peoples of Middle-earth, right? Like, he's oh. like, okay, we've got Gimli for dwarves, we've got Legolas for the elves, Aragorn for men. Boromir's coming because it's, like, on his way, <laughs> which is, like, the explanation that they give, and he's a valiant man. That's oh, how, how they put it. Um, you know, Sam's going because obviously, and then he's trying to figure out who will get to go next. Um, and Pippin is like, hey, but that doesn't leave any room for us, you know? Um, and they say that they want to go with Frodo and Elrond responds with, that is because you do not understand what lies ahead. 
And I think, like, in the movies, we see Gandalf give Pippin a lot of shit all the time. Um, and But I love that in the book, at this moment, he sticks up for he backs him up. And he says, like, neither does Frodo. And talks about how if any of them knew, like, none of them would volunteer. And it's better to trust their friendship than wisdom. And Elrond tries to keep them behind because, you know, he does have some gift of foresight. And I think he knows that something's going to go down in the Shire. Um, and so he wants to send them back to, like, warn their people um, and warn the hobbits. But eventually Pippin's determination wins out and they all get they do get to go and be a part of the fellowship. Um, which I think is a is an interesting contrast between the movies. Like again, we see Mary and Pippin not like getting to like argue their case. They just are just kind of like swooshed in because they have they have to be in it. And I get it. Like they're saving time or whatever. But they're they we've done this multiple times to Mary and Pippin where it's like, yeah, you just go like run into you in a field. Now you're part of the journey for the rest of the time. Uh, volunteers at the council, even though they. I, I, I'm, do you think they were trying to imply that they were listening to the whole thing the same way that Sam was? Yeah. Yeah. So so what do you guys think about the way that Mary and Pippin joined the fellowship? I think that in the movie they used it as like some brevity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that they're kind of more of the comedic relief. We just had this really intense scene where they're like, oh shit, uh, the ring needs to be destroyed. And, you know, orcs and scariness. And then they're like, okay, everyone volunteer to their death. Um, and Mary and Pippin kind of are like, you know, don't forget us. That sounds cool. Where are we going again? <laughs> you know? Uh, so that that's those are the vibes that the movie is giving, at least. Yeah. And I kind of appreciate that they're very, like, ride or die. They just, mm -hmm. they're kind of just dropping whatever and, and going along with it. I, I like it, but, um, but it certainly isn't as nuanced or three-dimensional as when they clearly have a ton of time to think about what they're doing and plan for it as much as, you know, as much as is possible. So yeah, I, I like that the books, you know, have more depth to their characters. Yeah. I think it's something that a lot of like, I keep seeing this again and again, where there's several, if not many people on the internet that really think that Peter Jackson presented to them exactly what the books were putting down and I just think that there's obviously some nuance that was lost. Um, and I really love the Hobbits. I think that their role in, in the Fellowship is, uh, like, obviously we get to see it grow. And I think that is kind of like a recurring thing that Peter's doing is, like, where we start off with the character in one way, and then they get to grow throughout the course of the three films. Um, and I'm guessing that that's what they're kind of doing with Merry and Pippin as well, like the way Aragorn isn't sure about becoming king, whereas in the books he's like, hell yeah, I'm going to be king. And like, well, not so much like that, but you know what I mean. He's definitely sure that he's he's just trying to figure out how what way to go about it rather than like trying to, you know, claim it at all in the movie. Um, and then with Frodo and Merry and Pippin, I think that they're trying to set up this you know, more innocent characters, um, and then they kind of grow into themselves a little bit. 
um, which I appreciate. But I do think that because Mary and Pippin are relied on so much for comic relief in the movies, that there is some of that uh, of their character that is lost. Um, Gimli as well. well. Yeah. Gimli for is also sure. one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every time I reread the books, even just these three chapters, I kept thinking, man, there's so much nuance from Gimli mm-hmm. that we just, we lost in the movies, which is too bad. Yeah, it is too bad. It's, uh, and like the way that uh, the kind of back and forth between Gimli and Legolas happens in the movie, it's like, mm-hmm. it's got a different vibe in the in the book, you know, like they definitely tease each other a lot more, I would say, in the movie. Which, you know, is fun or whatever. And they do tease each other, you know, they talk about in uh, Near the Mines of Moria where they're trying to find the doors and um, I think it's Gimli that points out that the, you know, the doors are invisible, they can be invisible and you can lose them sometimes and uh, that, wait, what am I saying? There's a part, like right at that part, um... <laughs> there's too much book. <laughs> <laughs> oh it all blends together you guys i just read it like yesterday oh, no it's, it's at that part where gandalf says that the the gates were made when the dwarves and elves were still friends and yes. how that was a long time ago and then uh uh gimli says something about well it's not the dwarves who ended that friendship and then legolas says well i didn't hear that it was the elves that ended it so yes, exactly was- and then gandalf is like i've heard both yeah, and Gandalf is like, would you please? Yes. Would you please stop? Yeah, we're in a situation yeah. here. So I think that that leads us to like the build up to Moria. Um, so this is something that I totally forgot until like yesterday is that Gandalf acts like going through the gap of Rohan was the plan the whole time, and then I get. And then they have to divert to a plan B with the pass of, uh, you know, the Redhorn Gate, the pass of Caradras, um, to go over the Misty Mountains because they believe the birds to be spies of, of Saurons. Saurons? They think it's Saurons. They, they do a lot of Sauron stuff in this, this part. Um, and so, like, if you're imagining the, the map, uh, the Misty Mountains bisects Middle Earth by north and south. Um, and the Gap of Rohan is essentially where the mountains stop and leave a gap between the Misty Mountains and the White Mountains. This is the way that Boromir came. Um, and so in the movies, they act like that is the way that they were planning to go. They're going down the Misty Mountains and they're going to cut through there. Uh, but then because of the birds, they switch to going over the mountains. And But in the book, like, We've are, we talk at length about how Saruman is a traitor and there's no way that we can go past Isengard now. Um, and so it was never considered a, an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... But, and, like, there are several differences about this part of the book, but the big one for me is how they decide to go through the Mines of Moria. So in the movies, they, like, really play into... Gandalf being afraid to go through the mines and like they have the whole uh, Christopher Lee kind of narrating as Saruman being like you know, saying the dwarves dug too greedily and too deep and you know you fear what you may find kind of thing mm-hmm. um, but in the books he is very much like 
arguing with Aragorn kind of behind the scenes the whole time about mm -hmm. um, whether or not they sh should go over the mountains. And Aragorn is like, we're trying the mountains first, Gandalf. And, you know, he's criticizing him and uh, asks Aragorn, like, what do you think of your course now? Like, this isn't really working out, is it? And he's oh, like, no. we are trying this because I don't like it. <laughs> um, and after the path over the mountain fails, Gandalf finally reveals to the rest of the Fellowship his idea to go through the mines and says that he's already passed through it once many years ago coming from the east, so different door. Um, but Aragorn protests, saying, I too once passed the Dimril Gate, but though I also came out again, the memory is evil. I do not wish to enter Moria a second time. But then when it's kind of like, well, what else are we going to do? You know, he asks, he does that in the movie. He, he makes Frodo make the decision, which feels a little unfair. Uh, but in the book, he's like, he, does, he asks for his opinion. And he's like, well, if we turn back, that's a defeat, right? And he's like, yeah, if we go back to Rivendell now, there's no way that we could set out again. Mm. And so uh, Frodo's like, all right, well, we got to keep going. And so that leads them to the mines. And Aragorn um, adds, it's not of the ring, nor of us others that I'm thinking of now, but of you, Gandalf. And I say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware. And now I really don't think... So, like, we know that there's a Balrog um, because we've watched the movies and read the books above, you know, who we are now. But at this point, I don't think Aragorn or Gandalf do know about the Balrog per se, uh, but it's clear in the text that both have an idea that something is up in Moria. What do you guys think happened when they, if they've both been through Moria before and they know it was evil or something was not right what do you guys think happened in there like when gandalf and aragorn went through yeah and i think they went through separately many years ago i kind of think i mean there's no proof of this but mm -hmm. i kind of was thinking maybe it was when aragorn was looking for Gollum mm -hmm. after he um when after yeah. he escaped and he was helping Gal uh, Gandalf try to look for him, I wonder if he went in there at that point and just that encountered orcs. But that's that's just a guess. Who knows? Who knows yeah. for sure what it is? There's some good foreshadowing though mm -hmm. that it might be a Balrog. Um, and I noticed it when I was rereading. But um, right before they go up Paradras, before they you know encounter the snow, Boromir says, "Let's gather some wood so we can have a fire." And Gandalf is like, well, you can't, we can't have a fire. And Boromir says, look, if it's between being discovered and freezing to death, you know, we should, we'll, we'll light a fire. And, mm -hmm. uh, and Gandalf says, but we must not use the wood, not unless it is a choice between fire and death. And I just kind of thought, well, it does end up being fire and death for you, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> um, ouch. I just kind of laughed a little bit at that part. Poor guy. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I I don't think Aragorn would have known there was a Balrog. Maybe Gandalf would have had an idea yeah. that it could have but been that, but... he I feel like maybe that is the thing about being a Maiar, is that maybe you just have, like, a sense that, like, there's something here that is really not good, you mm -hmm. know? Because, because I do think he is surprised once we get to that part, um, which I think... We'll talk about it in two seconds. But I, I do think it's interesting that both of them are like, 
know that it's spooky. And Aragorn's like, that's too spooky for me. And Gandalf is like, it's just spooky enough. It's fine. We'll figure it out. Because <laughs> Aragorn does say, like, when they're worried later, like, once they finally get through the, the doors and they're, get, you know, Gandalf gets a little confused, you know, Aragorn does reassure them that he's like, don't worry, guys, like, this guy is going to, he'll get us through this. Like, he's been through worse. And he'll get it get us through this, like, almost at the detriment of himself. Like, even if he doesn't, like, we probably will. Um, so he's kind of still, like, harping on, like, it's like they know something bigger than all of them is there. But that, like, we're all kind of, like, fingers crossed that we don't wake it up. And in the movies, you know we're being sneaky and then we do find out that like there's a butt ton of orcs there again um but earlier in the book uh gandalf still thinks that there there shouldn't be that many right because they they got rid of so many orcs through the battle of the five armies at the end of the hobbit and they've been kind of cleared out but now you know obviously think evil things have been creeping back um into misty mountains and in other places um there's, like, a couple other changes that happen in this part that I didn't know if you guys wanted to talk about, but there's, like, the crazy weather on the mountain and how the movies portray that as Saruman's work. Um, and then also there is a wolf attack that happens before they get to the mines. I love the wolf attack. You want to talk about wolf attack? I, just, I love it. It's just such a great scene. and It would have been cool to see it in the movie. Uh, I agree. And you know what makes me laugh? I was talking, I don't... Josh doesn't believe me, but I'm like, you know, sometimes I think Peter was sad that he missed out on showing those wolves in, in uh, Holland or like, you know, after they give up on the going over the mountain. And so that's why we get those extra warg scene in Two Towers. <laughs> that's my <Yeah>. theory. <laughs> Actually, that's a really good theory. Because <laughs> I feel like uh, in most action sequences... Peter always takes it up to a 10, right? Like, he's always so ready to make those, like, really fun and, like, exciting. You know, like, even in the scene when they're um, in the chamber with Balin's tomb and they fight off all those orcs and the cave troll and all that. Like, that is... I, I, when I was rereading it, apparently they only killed, like, 13 orcs in that fight in the book there were 13 bodies and then a great orc chieftain jumps in and is the and most of them run away in fear because of how great fighters they are and then an orc chieftain is the one that comes in and surprises them and stabs frodo but it's like this huge like fighting sequence that we see with the cave troll and all that um so i i'm almost surprised that he didn't do the wolf attack because the thing about the wolves is that they they're wolves but they're not there's something else up with them so anna since you're our movie stand-in um i'll just try to and sarah help me out here but um they give up on going to the path going over the mountains and they're too tired to go any further essentially and they know the birds can see them because in the movie the birds only show up once but the birds kind of hang out and are still, like, kind of keeping watch. Um, and they're like, screw it. There's nothing we can really do about it. Um, and then they find a place to rest, like, on the crest of this hill that's kind of surrounded by some, like, withered old trees. And um, then they hear 
these wolves crying and they're like oh shit so <laughs> then they all kind of like gather up they make sure there's fire um and then they kind of they're like staying out of the light and then they attack um and then Gan you know legolas shoots a bunch of them some through the throat gandalf sets all the trees on fire and you know the attack event you know it eventually is over but then in the morning there are no wolf bodies but there are the arrows that Legolas shot. So and there's no explanation. It just says, yeah, Gandalf just says, it is as I feared. These were no ordinary wolves. Like, but it doesn't explain were they apparitions? Like it just, yeah, and it's like, who sent them? Right. Because they, like, the movies really implies that everything bad that's happening right now is, like, Saruman. Mm -hmm. But at one point, Gimli says, well, the enemy's arm must be, have grown long if, you know, talking about Sauron, um, must be, have grown long if they can, he can reach us out here. And he's like, the enemy's arm has grown long. So I almost think that, and, and there's part of it, it's like, can is the ring drawing just evil to Frodo and they're coming out of the north or something? Um, have how long have they been tracking them? Can Sauron just send like ghost wolves to attack people? I don't know. I think that there's like a mysticalness to the enemies of Middle earth that doesn't get explored as much in the movies. And the mountain, too, the snow on the mountain in the book, they say Definitely. maybe it's like Sauron or Saruman, but they don't know for sure. And one of them, I forget which one, says that, um, you know, it could be just an older evil that's causing that the mountain itself is fighting them off. And it's it's just all supposition. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it made it neater for the movies to say oh, it's definitely Saruman doing this. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, I get it. Like, uh, you know, it's an enemy that we can see. Like, and I'm, I'm never going to argue about giving more stuff to Christopher Lee, obviously. Um, and it's an enemy that we know. And it's, and I think it probably would take more explanation to be like, well, actually, because Gimli calls Karadpras the cruel. Like, I think this mountain has a history of being a jerk. <laughs> um, probably longer than... Saruman having a history of being a jerk. So um, my theory is that it's the mountain doing it itself to just be like, get off of here. I don't know. Absolutely not. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I do understand why they, they do give it to Saruman. And Saruman over Sauron as well. Because I still think Fellowship were still kind of removed from the, the Sauron stuff. You know, we start to see more, more Mordor stuff as we get into Two Towers and particularly Return of the King. Um, but it's good but to kind of focus it all on Saruman at first because he's like the first big bad guy they defeat yeah. sort of over the course of the films. And then you defeat him, but then they immediately say, oh, but you know, don't forget, he wasn't the really big bad guy. So now you have to focus on as hard as this was, it's about to get harder. Yeah, so, absolutely. He was a good. Um, he was a good amuse bouche. <laughs> yeah, agree. Evil. I, I wish we had it. gotten the wolves scene only. The it would have thrown the pacing off. But what I like about it so much is when Gandalf just like 
explodes all those trees with fire. <gasps> yes. Because we see him with his fireworks in the Shire and to mm-hmm. sort of see like the instead of like the cute the fun side of, reason why he's able to do that he's good at fireworks not because he likes fireworks well maybe he does but he's good at fireworks because he's a very powerful like fire wizard who can do all this so it would have been it would have been cool to see but yeah i, I totally agree like i get it but like if we're writing up a list, wish list of things that we could have seen if this is gonna be on there <laughs> That's and I would like to see Boromir just piggybacking the hobbits out of the snow. <laughs> I know. So when um, they are on the, so they stay on the mountain for like a whole night, essentially, like waiting for it to kind of stop, um, essentially waiting for the mountain to give them a break. And the Boromir does say, you know, like, this is going to be the death of the halflings, you know, and so, and they don't have shovels or any tools. And so just Boromir and Aragorn just, dig them out like they just it's several furloughs i don't even know how long that is but it's quite a distance and legolas helps them out by just like trotting over the snow because elves can just walk on it on top of snow yeah (laughs) and he's like oh yeah you only have to dig until here and then it lets up he does Um, not help no (laughs) he doesn't physically help (laughs) no and Gandalf kind of teases him for it yeah which i like um, yeah. So then he just like carries, and then Gimli gets on Bill the Pony to get out yeah. of it, and then the hobbits get carried out of it by Boromir and Aragorn. And it's like this whole sequence could have taken so long if they wanted it to. <laughs> sure. So we get why they didn't, but you know, I'm still like Peter. We know there's a lot of things you didn't release. If you've got it somewhere, just send it to me, please. <laughs> I wonder if they had to like control what they did so they wouldn't get like an R rating or something because all of the things that you know intrigue me about items that are missing from the books are like creepy you know mm. more fight sequency mm. stuff that they they could have just been worried about maintaining their PG-13 status so they had to cut stuff just purely from a rating standpoint because maybe it would have gotten too dark that's possible you could really make the Lord of the Rings into a horror film. I've never Easy. thought of it that way. But you, you're right. Yeah, they could have really leaned into how creepy some of it is. And I think that's, to me, that's one of my best, like my favorite pieces of Tolkien's writing is when he's writing about the creepier stuff. Like there's, he captures that creepy, like sense of foreboding feeling, I think super well. Um, and, and you see it more when we get into Mordor, but I think Moria is like our first kind of taste of it. And I think he's really good at it. And mm-hmm. like with the Nazgul as well, he's very good at making, I'm like, ooh, Nazgul. like I don't know the situation, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> so, okay, so they finally get into, uh, you know, Moria and and then there's like there's other stuff that happens but like the whole watcher in the water thing um the watcher tearing the doors down behind them and then they go up these stairs that's pretty much right obviously he turns it up again to a 10 because it's peter and he can't help himself but like the whole um because they got it right as far as one arm grabbing frodo's ankle and then sam chops it like so that frodo doesn't get taken and then that's when they run in 
but it being Peter, he like has all the arms come out and like grabs him and he's dangling upside down and it becomes like a whole like gotta save Frodo thing. Um, and I do think it's important to show like these evil things trying to go for Frodo. You know, I think that that is a, an interesting aspect of it. That he's not really doing anything, but it senses that he's there, and they don't. It doesn't go for any other member of the Fellowship, um, but they made it. It's you know a bigger deal than it was, which also makes me think like maybe we did have time for wolves. <laughs> if we had time to do that, maybe we did have time for wolves. <laughs> Uh, so we get into Moria. The I think that the way that they present Moria is beautiful. Like Gandalf with his, you know, the staff with the light. They do these like really interesting shots of, you know, showing it being a creepy place, but then also showing some of the wonder of it. Like when they're talking about Mithril and the coat of mail that Bilbo has, and they show like lines of Mithril in the walls. I think that was a really beautiful scene. Um, when Gandalf risks a little light and they show kind of one of those great halls of Casa Doom. I think that was really awesome. One of uh, the best scenes in the entire trilogy for me personally. It's just it's like, it's like the big Yeah, when he risks a little more light is like it's jaw dropping every single time. It's so good. I know. And like, like the way the music swells. It's just like a mm-hmm. perfect combination of everything. Yeah. I would say. And it's just um, a beautiful beat between how scary and, and just how terrifying it's been and is about to be it's it was just such a nice moment to take a beat and say you know there are still beautiful things in this world and and we everyone takes a moment the you know the characters on the screen and we as the audience take a moment to be like wow before it gets scary again real yeah and i think it's a good nod to the dwarves you know like they we've gotten to see rivendell and like how beautiful that scene was and obviously Moria isn't what it was supposed to be but to show to like be like yes like like this was once a place where you know happiness thrived and people thrived you know in under the mountain um I think was was good to show obviously like you know we get a little bit more of that in a hobbit when uh but not like a lot there's just not a lot of dwarf stuff. So like I'm ready for, you know, I'm happy whenever we can have a little nod to the great stuff that dwarves are able to do. So, and then one of the best scenes, one of the most, I think, iconic scenes in the trilogy happens when they're in Moria. When um, Frodo finally gets a glimpse of Gollum and the scene that originally happened in the Shire, which we've talked about, a few episodes ago, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> the uh, where G- Gandalf is explaining Gollum to Frodo and explaining the importance of Bilbo's pity and you know consoling Frodo a little bit. That gets that gets moved into Moria, um, which I think was a beautiful choice as far as like the emotional kind of roller coaster that this has been. You know, you finally starting to see more of and then that's kind of back again to like the growth and like the change of the hobbits character that happens first thing in the book essentially and then now we're not getting it until frodo is like movie frodo is grappling with the choice that he's made to take the ring and he's you know it's been hard it was hard and then they they had a little break in rivendell and then it's been hard again just like obstacle after obstacle and 
you know, Frodo was saying, like, I wish this had never happened, you know, um, and Gandalf gets to say, you know, so do all who live to see such times. And we, we have talked about this before, but um, Sarah, what do you think about moving that part of the conversation to, to Moria? I think it was a really good choice. Um, if they had had that back in Bag End, we would have pretty well forgotten about it. There's like a lot of... Um, there's a lot of nuance that's packed into that conversation about reminding that like, like the orcs are pure evil, but Gollum isn't. Um, And so understanding that there are layers and different sides to the characters is important. And if we just had that back in bag end, we would have forgotten about that, I think as much by the time we got into Moria. So having that moment where they have faced um, the writers, they faced the Watcher in the Water, they've faced some, what well, I haven't worked yet, but, but they've like seen the- what works can do. You've sort of had all of these reminders of, of the pure evil that exists in Middle-earth. So mm-hmm. to have where you're like, well, actually, Gollum is not a purely evil character, is, is a good reminder um, to mm-hmm. not be, like as Gandalf says, do not be so quick to deal out death and judgment. Right. So I think it's a good good idea to put it there instead. Yeah. I wish that they had added just like one other little line for Gandalf to kind of emphasize that Gollum isn't beyond saving. Because I do think that's something that a lot of movie fans miss. Um, like, I, I think they try to do it, but there are, like, there's parts of it where I'm like, guys, no, like, seriously, like, Gandalf multiple times is set telling us that Gollum is he has a part to play here and and so I get a little sad when I see fans that just outright hate Gollum and I under like I get it on one hand like sure he's not like a good guy but he ha- he he's the reason that we're able to succeed like you know what I mean like he um is super important to the story and I think that to just outright dislike him is it makes me a little sad mm-hmm. yeah so he also serves as a good reminder of what frodo could become if he keeps the ring for too long mm-hmm. so it's, it's good to see that kind yeah. of like, what effect it can have yeah, and it's, and that is one thing that Gandalf does get to talk about a little bit more in the books as far as, like, it's amazing that Gollum is, like, it, like it's obviously sad and it's not a good life that he's living, but it is amazing that he is still hanging on, you know? Like, that he is, has not faded more than he has, that he still has, like, he, he talks about, how he kind of enjoyed that conversation with Bilbo with the riddle game, you know, part of him starting to remember, you know, the sunlight and the fish and the what, you know, like the things above ground. Um, and I think there's a part of Gollum that we don't like, obviously at this point, we don't really get to see very much, but we do later on. I think we will get to see, you know, like a little bit of softening of Gollum, um, so, so I love that I do love that they moved it here, um, because and having that little glimpse of Gollum, even more so than in the book, because in the book, like we don't really see Gollum, but we know that Frodo starts to hear these like soft little pattering of feet behind them. He's like 
not quite sure what he's hearing, but like his senses have been heightened because of the Morgul blade stab that he got on mm-hmm. Weathertop. Um, so he can see a little bit better than in the dark than he used to, and he's can kind of hear uh, this little slapping of feet. And it, he thinks it's an echo at first, but then he realizes that it if they stop, it goes on for a second, and then it like stops. And then at one point when they're resting, um, and Frodo is on watch, he sees like it's like these lights, like these two points, like eyes watching mm-hmm. him from a distance, and he's like. He's like, I must be imagining things. Like, I must be so sleepy right now. Like, what is that? And, he, and it, and then it goes away. And later, I think, was when we find out this is Gollum. Like, nobody has mentioned Gollum really in the books yet. Um, yeah. But so I, I mean, I like that they they give us a little bit more in the movies um, because there's not really ever a time to explain that Gollum has been following them this long. Like, they can't, like, later they talk about it more, but um, in the movie it just, like, happens and, you know, we see it rather than having it explained to us, which I think is probably one of the biggest differences between a book and a movie, obviously. (laughs) So, now we come to what is arguably one of the best parts of these chapters is the encounter with the Balrog. We've seen a bunch of different versions of evil, I don't think we've ever seen a version of evil that is this ancient in, in so far. So um, we know that we've talked about Peter Jackson, like dialing everything up to a 10. But I think when we have Gandalf and the Balrog facing off on the bridge, that feels pretty spot on to me. I don't think there's any exaggeration. We get it just kind of as it's described. And I think that it's beautiful. Um and I don't know what about you two, but uh, I love the design of the Balrog in the movies. Um, even if they're like technically not supposed to have wings, I think it like I love. They look uh, awesome. They look so good. <laughs> like the way that like the flames kind of erupt out of them and like go in and out, um, and it they do have the part where it's just kind of like darkness all around him, which I think is really cool. Um, but like. He looks so good. So cool. It's so fascinating. Like, everything about it is interesting and captivating. Just the sheer size as well. I mean, they describe him, Balrog, as being, you know, very big. But they, Mm -hmm. if I just read the book and don't think about the movies, I don't imagine the Balrog being as big as it was in the movie. And I I like it a lot, I think you're right. I think that they they give these acting like it's like it's not a man, but man ish in like the, its form, and that kind of yeah. makes it man shaped. Yeah, and like he's oh. could be smaller, um, but I think like nah, he should be big. <laughs> he should be a big old guy, big old monster. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I've seen different illustrations of it. Like, oh, there was one version I had that I think it's my green leather versions that are at my mom's house. But I think that that has a really strange illustration in it of a Balrog. And it looks just like a weird looking dude. And I was always like, oh, like, 
no that's not, that's not it or cool like um no hate to that illustrator but it's it, definitely not my vision uh of the Balrog and maybe that's Peter's fault but or John Howe's fault maybe they just um, need to be primordial I think I think you need to yeah. feel that you're like like Gandalf says in the movies this foe is beyond any of you and you just need to I, you need to know that the instant you see it. So yes, uh, mm-hmm. the movie's got that yeah. very good, I think. Absolutely. And that is one thing um, also about the Balrog is that, so when they leave the chamber where they had the fight with the orcs, Gandalf is like, you guys go. Because uh, they hear something coming. So like uh, he tries, there's a door that they exit out of and it can't lock. So he tries to do like a locking spell onto it, like a shutting spell, I think he calls it. Um, and then I don't, it doesn't say this, but I'm pretty sure it's the Balrog casts a counter spell, um, which causes Gandalf to counter that. And then it causes the whole chamber to collapse, which unfortunately for Balin and his tomb, sad. But he's so drained by that encounter um, that by the time he sees the Balrog, he, you know, he he's like, go. He's like, you know, there's nothing more we can do. Um, but he's he's super tired. So I'm wondering, like, obviously there wasn't really a different direction they could go. But I'm wondering if, like, he hadn't have had to cast that spell. Would Gandalf had still been tripped up by the Balrog in the end? Would Was that inevitable? I don't know. I mean, it ended up being a very good thing. Yes. But um, and that's one thing about Lord of the Rings is like everything bad that happens ends up kind of working out. And this is definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, but just for, I don't know, for fun's sake, um, do you think that, and it's, and, and it's interesting because I've never really thought about the Balrogs being magical per se. Um, you know, they're like a, a fiery demon, right? But that they're, but, you know, they are technically the same type of being. So I guess if, and I, and I almost feel like spell might be like, for lack of a better word here, um, because of the way magic seems to work in Middle Earth is a little different than, you know, like, a you know, than Harry Potter or something, um, yeah, I think it's interesting to think about how, like, so he was super worn out by that point, like, mm-hmm. drained, I would say, by that encounter. And so then it's like, he's still able to defeat the Balrog insofar as, like, keeping him away from the Fellowship and keeping him from escaping. But it makes me wonder, like, maybe he could have moved a little faster off the bridge after that. Oh. <laughs> if he hadn't been so tired, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. I wonder if he had been present for the rest of that movie if the ring would have been able to tempt Boromir mm. I just I wonder if, if Gandalf had been present if that would have been enough to keep Boromir sort of in line true I, I, I'm just this is just speculation at this point like yeah would that we have we love doing that here oh, yeah <laughs> That is interesting. Okay, so we have Gandalf. Say we have to, we get to keep Gandalf. I'm sure that Gandalf's plan was still to go to Lothlorien. 
I don't really have any doubt in my mind about that because he kind of says it, I think, at some point, um, mm-hmm. indirectly in some way. Uh, but so Aragorn gets in that far, and then that's where we start to see Aragorn being like really conflicted, um, because he wants to. I think that Aragorn thought that Gandalf was going to go with Frodo all the way, and so then Aragorn's plan was to go off to Minas Tirith with Boromir. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that gets tripped up with Merry and Pippin getting kidnapped. And of course, like, I don't know. I think the Fellowship was destined to definitely break at that point. I, think I don't it think be- it would have worked no. if they hadn't. I don't think the whole group, whether all eight or all nine, could have gotten unseen into Mordor. Like, mm-hmm. I think it had to have been broken up and just have the two of them mm-hmm. get in with Gollum's help. Because Gollum wouldn't have tried to get close enough to oh, no. how to get in if they'd all been there either, I don't think. So, yeah, I don't know how... I don't see how it could have worked otherwise. Yeah, so. I think you're right. But it is... It's so hard to watch Gandalf die. Even if we do get him back. But I love him so, so much. Oh, do you cry ever? Are you ever like... Little, I'm sure little that little I do. It, it depends on probably the mood that I'm in. I bet if... So, like, I had to... When I was like... So I rewatch it, um, basically just trying to get the move so that i can tell you the minutes that we're at like i get it i'm like okay so the book says they escape but it doesn't really talk about the crying yet but i feel like if i watch that whole scene of them like it happens frodo screams no and that's like essentially where i had to stop it like them like running away from the arrows but if i continue the scene and like they're all crying and outside of uh the dim gate and you know, he's like, like, alas, get them up, you know, and it's like, and, and like Sam with his head in his hands, I'm like, that can get me. That, that part gets you? Yeah, for sure. I hate that part of the movie where Aragorn <laughs> makes them get up. I'm just like, in the book, they all just cry. Just let I them know. cry. But... They cry and they go look at the, uh, what is that lake or that body of water called? That starts with an M, hang on. Yeah, Miramir? Yeah, mirror, 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 mirror. Yeah, that's too many R's. Murmur, But that's like something that Gamblier was really looking forward to seeing, but then it's like casts a shadow over it because now they're grieving a member of their fellowship being lost. But what's wild to think about is like we only lose people in Fellowship of the Ring. That's true. The rest of the fellowship, they're they're pretty they hang on for the rest of the time. And we get Gandalf back, but so it's like not really. You just yeah. lose Ned. You don't really lose anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor Sean Bean. Yeah. But when you think about it, a lot more time is covered in fellowship, whereas like all oh. of Two Towers and Return of the King happens in like a month. From the time they leave Lothlorien to the destruction of the ring is a month. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Is that insane? Yes. I don't know how long it feels in the book, or in the movie. Um, I mean, it feels like... It feels longer. Yeah. Hmm. Sarah, do you have a a feel? It feels... It feels longer than that, I think. Because especially when... Like, the parts where Frodo and Sam are getting really um, just very dirty and raggedy, like, the further oh, they yeah. go on. I feel like it, 
I feel so bad for them. It feels like it. It's like it, it takes so long. I'm like, please, <laughs> please save them. I know, and I think but, that they are. They're. I don't know. There must be like, like I know it's technically kind of going. I guess it's kind of direct for them to go through the marshes to get to the. And most people go around. Um. I don't know. I uh, don't have a lot of spatial thinking. I think Anna, that's you're probably better at that than me. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm just like I have no concept of time in Middle Earth anymore. <laughs> Everything's just like boom, 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 boom. Because like when we, if you go and flip through the appendices and like the timeline in the back, it doesn't list like every little thing that happens. Because because I was trying to like look that up when I was figuring out like how we would lay out our episodes. Like once we get through. The Two Towers and Return of the King. The I'm trying for movie watchers' sake. I'm trying to line it up as much as possible without cutting, intercutting chapters, but lining it more up with like how the movie is presenting it. Um, so it's gonna get a little dicey, like where we're flipping in between books and stuff. Um, and I say books, meaning because each book of Lord of the Rings is divided into books. So, like, this is, like, book one and two, and two towers is book three and four. And mm. I, I don't know how else to explain that, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's going to get interesting, for sure. Sarah, is there anything else that we need to talk about in our journey from Rivendell mm-hmm. through Casa Dune? So there was one thing that I noticed um, that I really... I did say it's a small thing, but I thought it was interesting. Um, so, like, Gimli and Legolas, like... Like sort of the start of their, um, I think you can sort of see the start of their friendship. So they're they're bickering before they go into Moria, mm-hmm. but then you get these moments where um, they sort of are speaking at the same time, and it's it's interesting to see that Tol- Tolkien is starting to like pair them together. Um, when the orcs attack them in and uh, the room with Balin's tomb, mm-hmm. they both say they echo um, some of the words from the book. <gasps> Yes, yeah. Very good. Um, And I'm very sorry that I didn't have it open to the page. You mean the book that Gandalf is reading from when he said, we cannot get out, like they are coming, we cannot get out? Gandalf is reading that book and then they hear the orcs actually coming and Legolas says they are coming and Gimli says we cannot get out. Um, And so they, they echo it. And then later when the Balrog shows up, Legolas says a Balrog, a Balrog has come and Gimli just says Durin's Bane. So you guys, I just, I like that you start to see these moments where the two of them are like, just, just being paired together. Yeah. And, and they're similar. having like the same emotional reaction. Yeah. And to... you, you start to see that they are like syncing up. Mm-hmm. So this is like just the, the very start of the foundation of their friendship. And I, I really like seeing that because their friendship is like one of my favorite things about the book. Yeah, you're definitely going to have to come back on when we get into Two Towers and seeing more Gimli and Legolas together. Because once, like, I I think it makes sense. Like, they're they're going through something really crazy together. They start to, um, I mean, they're not, like, the same age. But when you think about it, like, Aragorn and Boromir kind of paired up in a way. And, like, the hobbits Mm -hmm. all have their hobbit friend with them. Um, so, and it's probably hard to relate to a wizard like Gandalf, so, like, I could see how they would kind of, like, gravitate toward each other, um, even with all the history of 
animosity that might be there between their races. And I think it's a key point of Tolkien's that, like, you can unlearn to, you know, the, your family or historical dislike of another type of people. Uh, and I, I think that's an important point, too. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that he points out that they're, like, bickering early on, but then they start to, you know, have these common experiences, you know, they're getting to know each other, and um, we see throughout the course of the story, like, how they support and defend each other. Then they're having these friendly competitions about who can kill the most orcs and then it, and then they're planning vacations together for after when it's all over like we're gonna go explore fangorn and the glittering caves together if we make it alive for this so yeah the the turnaround especially for like legolas who's immortal the yeah. turnaround from i hate you to being like we're best buds we're going on a road trip is like <laughs> for him just very quick which yeah. is very fun to watch yeah so we're definitely gonna have to get you back here Mm-hmm. for, for yes. some of that because um, that'll be really fun to talk about because I think like you know Gandalf is obviously important for the role that he has like to move these events the way that they're kind of supposed to be moved Aragorn's obviously important for like him kind of reuniting the men of Middle Earth the hobbits are important not in you know kind of like substituting that like everybody can like even when they're all broken up and that they can um make they can do things that make a big impact you know even when it feels small like even if just waking up the ants could feel small but it has like a huge impact right or um befriending Gollum feels small but it has a big impact right and then with Legolas and Gimli I think that that's like a big commentary or maybe not like commentary but like it's like an example of how like we can get over ourselves a little bit and like come us coming together in like small ways and big ways and how that that can improve the state of the world maybe that's just me i think you're right and i think it's (laughs) it's really nice to see them sort of doing that together yeah so I think, so, okay, so where does that leave us? So we've lost Gandalf. It's the worst thing that's probably happened to us since we started this journey. Um, and we are left essentially on the stairs at the end of, uh, you know, we've escaped just barely um, through Casa Doom. And now uh, we're grieving and the fellowship has we've kind of given you a preview of what they're going to do next, but uh, you know, going to Lothlorien, figuring out what the next steps are for the group. Um, and so next week is when we're going to see. Uh, we're going to take a pause in Lothlorien because they do stay there for like a month, um, and we're going to dive into all of that, um, into all of the nuances of Lothlorien and the significance of that. So thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. This has been really, really fun. This was a great time. I I hope I can come back very soon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Whenever you want, door is open. All right, I'm I'm going to, because we need to talk more about Legolas and Gimli, at least. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely will. So stay tuned, y'all, and uh, we will see you next time.
All right. Thank you again.